0: Hello and welcome back to the Spikes podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me in the studio as ever we have Spikes editor Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line we're delighted to have Spikes columnist Rakib Essan. Hello. Coming up on today's show Prince Harry, the Brazilian riots and trigger warnings on children's literature. So, the Prince Harry memoir spare came out this week, and I think it 's fair to say it 's been explosive, certainly um, a lot more exciting than a lot of people might have anticipated, especially if you watch that kind of six hour boring netflix snooze fest we 've actually learned quite a lot, especially lots of sort of salacious details i mean there 's talk of harry 's fisticuffs with william there's the um, there 's the amount of people he killed in Afghanistan. Right down to the frostbitten penis and the time that he lost his virginity in a pub to an older woman. I mean, Tom, given that Harry is someone who's been banging on about his privacy and the importance of that to him, doesn't Mm -hmm. this whole charade come off as a bit hypocritical.
1: Well, it does. I mean, it's been like this for a while with Harry and Meghan, is that, first of all, they, especially where this book is concerned, the hypocrisy mm. is really hard to ignore. I mean, even in some of the interviews around it, Prince Harry has said that he suggested that he would be willing to meet with the royal family again, but he would be concerned about what would make it out into the press. And yet here he is yeah. essentially quoting directly from them, from text messages in some cases, from very private conversations, things that would never seen in the light of day. Uh, things which are going to almost sting more so for members of the royal family because there is that kind of Walter badger idea of, you know, you're not supposed mm. to let light in on the magic. He's, he's really letting light in on all sorts of magical and very unmagical sort of moments that he experienced in his upbringing. But also in terms of Harry and Meghan themselves, you know, this has always been presented as a quest for privacy and yet they've been very willing to invade their own privacy. Mm. I mean, with this, all of the details that we're talking about here, um, some of them funny, some of them not so funny. Um, even things like the Netflix documentary where they would include very intimate kind of video diaries that they had done, yeah, Um, videos of him proposing and so on, like things which would really feel like they would kind of intrude upon what it is that um, they were supposed to be protecting. And yet it's quite clear that really what this has always been about is about trying to be 100% in control of what people say about them, Mm. their own narrative, their own story, their own truth, however Mm -hmm. you want to put it, and what they've always fundamentally objected to is that there have been people in the press, in the public, some of them well-intentioned, some of them maybe not so well-intentioned, who did have the right and the freedom to criticise them. That was what has kind of rankled them, to report on things which are embarrassing, that yeah. aren't going to be included in this particular time. And that's always what it's come down to, really. They haven't really been, if they wanted a private life, they would have disappeared into the, you know into the wilds outside of Vancouver way back when, when they left yeah. the UK in the first place. That's never what this was about.
0: And, you know, there's even been on when Harry's been doing the kind of American talk show rounds, he's been criticising the way that Spare has been reported. He's upset about direct quotes of his appearing in in the papers. I mean, Ricky, that is what it's all about, isn't it? He just doesn't want to be
2: criticised. No, absolutely. I um... I think he comes across as very sensitive. And even when he's presented with direct quotes from his book, he has a problem with it. It's his own book at the end of the day. Uh, I think that what I had a real issue with, especially with his ITV interview with Tom Bradby, Mm. was that um, Prince Harry was blaming his questionable behaviours on his socialisation in his younger years, um, how he was socialised under particular institutions. I'd love to know what cultural elements of Buckingham Palace and the British mainstream media compelled him to wear a Nazi swastika armband at a party (laughs) um, or to racially abuse a military colleague originating from Pakistan. So I think that much of it, if truth be told, uh, Prince Harry's trying to present himself as a bit of a modern-day anti-racism hero. But when it comes to his own questionable behaviour, I think he's quite reluctant when it comes to taking on personal responsibility.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that kind of anti-racism question because there, there was a even there was a quite quite a testy exchange in that mm. Tom Bradby interview mm. where he tried to say that really this is actually about unconscious bias. Tom, in that in that clip, he makes this rather tedious distinction between mm. unconscious bias and, and racism. Now, normally, most anti-racist activists would try and say they're the same thing. Mm. What, what is what is he trying to do? Is it just about him evading responsibility, or is there something deeper?
1: I I, th- I think it's a bit of both. I mean, on the one hand, it's um no one could watch that Oprah interview, which is what they're really originally referring to back in 2021, in which Megan talked, uh made this very strong allegation that there had been concerns expressed about the skin colour of their first child. Um, and then Oprah recoils when she's told this and then asks to give a name, and then mm. Megan says, I can't because that would be very damaging. Now Harry's trying to say, I didn't no one said it was racism. Yeah. Um th- that was the press who mm. were accusing it of racism. They were again sort of putting words in our mouth. And he talks about unconscious bias and he talks about the fact that even he hes spoken in other interviews about even he was sort of suffering from his unconscious bias. It's what he blames, incidentally, for the Nazi uniform incident yeah. as well as as <laughs> as well as the point in which he was um, using the P word in reference to another military cadet. Um, and on the one hand, I think that it's quite clearly just being used as a sort of ploy. I mean, maybe he's trying to curry favour, if that can even be conceived of in the midst of what it is that he's been doing in the past week or trying to create some sort of opening. But I think what he's kind of recognised consciously or unconsciously, if you like, is that a lot of these new anti-racist concepts, like implicit or unconscious bias, are a kind of uh, quite useful for, for in certain situations, one of which is to try and imply that there has been racism or to accuse an institution or individuals of racism in the absence of any evidence of yeah. it. Unconscious bias, there have been these quite discredited tests aimed at kind of um, measuring it. But generally speaking, it's something which you can only really assert, you can accuse someone of it, um, even in the absence of any statements, thoughts or actions, which mm. would back that up. So on the one hand, I think it shows how a lot of these kind of modern anti-racist concepts are very useful to people in positions of power like Harry because of the fact that you can effectively wield these accusations, um, particularly if you have a claim to victimhood by proxy with his wife. Yeah. Um, and everyone just has to sort of take them. You mm. know, it's their lived experience. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's Why would you challenge that? Um, But on the other hand, he's using it as a bit of a ploy to try and get himself out of a sticky situation because potentially he saw how damaging that accusation actually was. But it shows how slippery a lot of these concepts are. And I think in his broader kind of mission to wake the palace, but also it seems like the rest of the UK and the press up to their own unconscious biases. Mm. It also shows that very kind of oddly aristocratic bent that a lot of this has is that, you know, these people are They've seen the light. They understand yeah. now why the world is the way that it is. And even if you don't understand it, you have to be made to understand it, or I can kind of lead you in that direction. So you can understand why that's why he's kind of latched onto that as a particular narrative. But it doesn't mean that it's any more, it's any less kind of ridiculous in that sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, rakeep he's on in in one sense, he's trying to portray his immediate family as victims of racism. He seems to be victi- a victim of having the smaller bedroom. I mean. <laughs> A lot of the book is just full of this kind of um, victimology, this self-pitying, almost like Californian-style psycho babble. I mean, what do you make of that aspect of things?
2: Well, I, I think much of it it, it, it is self-victimhood, really, um, as far as I can see it. And I think that that in itself um, demonstrates to me that Prince Harry isn't really keen to take on personal responsibility for his role in those family tensions. Now, of course, I'd, I, anyone. Um, a reasonable mind will express sympathy with Prince Harry in terms of losing his mother in such tragic circumstances at the tender age of uh, tender age of twelve. In terms of his more recent uh, behaviour and the, a lot of these family feuds, I, I, I do feel that much of that it's been it's unfortunate that that's been revealed uh, in the public domain, and and I find it quite bizarre that Prince Harry is. He's calling for family reconciliation because every time he opens his mouth, he seems to reduce the chances of that taking place. If he was very serious about family reconciliation, he wouldn't have ultimately um, commodified his family history in the public domain. It does, And
0: it does seem to be that kind of therapeutic impulse that is, is driving him to kind of mm-hmm. spill all as well. You know, he's going far deeper than the tabloids would ever dare. Well, that's the thing,
1: because of, all, of this, all the sort of details and all of the kind of soul-bearing and the almost misplaced openness, you could say. Mm. Because some of the, part of the reason that some of these details are so shocking is because you wonder why anyone would ever kind of, you know, actually yeah. expose that, yeah. if you see what I mean. And it, it does really get to that very therapeutic ethos. On the one hand, I think it speaks to how that kind of cult of openness, as um, Joanna Williams referred to it on Spike this week, uh, but can so easily produce so many problems and frictions because you are kind of eroding any distinction between the public and private what is mm. your own business and what is everyone else's business uh families fight they say horrible right. things to each other sometimes uh you hopefully make sure you make up but the moment in which you to use that old cliche kind of you know air your dirty laundry in public yeah. and all the rest of it you not only um lose something which is your privacy in a, in a really profound sense not mm. just a few people papping you on the way to the supermarket you know really just letting the light in on some very private, intimate moments of your life. But you also push people who were in that private sphere away. And he doesn't seem to understand this Mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form. And it's interesting as well, because you, especially when he would start talking about the therapy that he's gone through, he talks about taking psychedelics in the therapeutic setting. He talks about his various points of, um, again, just the the various therapy that he's accessed over the years and how important it is and how he really thinks it's important. He doesn't really understand and he really thinks that, essentially the rest of his family are missing a trick because they haven't gone down that road because broadly speaking with some generational differences, they have kind of stuck to a kind of never complain, get on with things. We're here for public duty and so on. Um, He really doesn't understand that. And I think both in the clash between Harry and the rest of his family, as well as the sort of culture wall that has surrounded them, you really do see that clash of of values, one Mm -hmm. of which wants to prize openness and this kind of therapeutic culture, which often just takes the form of narcissism, really, above almost anything else, like the self is everything, towards a set of principles which are now kind of old fashioned, but I don't see why they should be and aren't for a lot of people in this country, I don't think which is to say that uh, some things are kind of sacred. Some, some things you do want to be private about. Things are more important than yourself and your own petty grievances. That could be your the role that you're supposed to perform in society, or that could be just your relationship to your own family. And yet in a figure like Harry, and as you say, the quite kind of Californian psycho babble that he seems to have drank pretty deep from, you see the antithesis of all of that. And that's yeah. what probably is part of the reason what makes the gap between his worldview and his family, as well as his detractors, feel so unbridgeable. This is just a two kind of completely conflictual way of looking at the world, if you like.
0: Um, before we move on, we've got to talk a bit about Harry's hatred for the press, because that seems to be the thing that shines through. Um, that's his biggest complaint, really, is, is a sort of press intrusion. But there's a really interesting clip that I think illustrates where hatred of the press quite easily becomes hatred of the reader.
1: Everyone's guilty for buying the newspapers, but hopefully no one actually believes what's in them. But of course they did. People did believe, and that was the whole problem. Britons, among the most literate people on the planet, were also the most credulous. Even if they didn't believe every word, there was always that residue of wonder. Hmm, where there's smoke, there must be
2: fire.
0: I mean, R- Rakim, do you think he's let the mask slip a little bit there, calling the British public um, credulous?
2: I think he has. But to be honest, if the mainstream British public generally has a negative view of Prince Harry, he's only got himself to blame, <laughs> um, if truth be told. Uh, in my view, I think British the, the, the majority of British people are fair-minded, uh, tolerant. And in, in my opinion, I think that this is a classic... Uh, Another classic example of Prince Harry externalising blame. It's the media's fault. He he made the argument that the media's indoctrinated much of the British public against him. And I think it's just that classic case of him not really taking on personal responsibility um, and unwilling to understand the role he has played uh, in in potentially undermining Buckingham Palace and the royal family. It was very interesting that he said that he still supports the monarchy. But in recent media appearances, along with his new book, it, it, some, of the, some of the comments he's, he's made amount to the vilification of Buckingham Palace. Uh, and, and in my view, especially through uh, the late Queen, even King Charles III, I do feel leading figures of the royal family have actually done more uh, for social cohesion in modern-day Britain than many so-called uh, anti-racists, and that includes uh, Prince Harry. And
1: also, what I find so striking as a Republican, obviously despite its Republican publication and so on, is how easily, it's starting to slip now, but Mm. how readily so many people in the quote-unquote liberal media were very willing to side with this Duke and Duchess against Mm. the tabloid media, against the popular press, against the public, really. I mean, when that whole... Uh, Megxit narrative that they were driven out by a racist palace a racist press and ultimately a racist public it's another point that Prince Harry has has made and hasn't really been called up on enough in the Oprah interview where he says that he never used to think that Britain was bigoted Mm. but now he's realised that it is because you know the press has poisoned the world to such an extent that how could it not be essentially Mm. I find really quite striking. I mean, a lot of people who were kind of early cheerleaders of Harry and Meghan are kind of slowly backing away from the crime scene and trying to pretend that they didn't, you know, go all in for them in the way that they did right now. But they were very willing to believe all of these smears to kind of side with two incredibly privileged people who were just upset by the criticism, essentially, Mm. were upset by the fact that they weren't fully in control of their own narrative and so on. And yet it kind of misses the fact that, you know... Press freedom in this country is built on the right to, to take the mick out of royals, really. I mean, yeah. that's where it kind of started, <laughs> as far as people like John Wilkes publishing scandalous things about what the Prime Minister was getting up to with the King's mother. Lies, in many yeah. cases. <laughs> Not to say that we should emulate that today, but it's just to say that, you know, really, if you're talking about a battle between an entitled Duke and Duchess mm. upset at people criticizing them and a popular press, I know which side I'm on. And yet there are a lot of people who really didn't. And I and I, I wonder if there's going to be any kind of realisation of what it is that they've been supporting all of this time.
0: Well, let's move on to talk about um, Brazil. Um, there's some quite um, surprising scenes, kind of eerie scenes um, coming out of um, the Brazilian capital with um, thousands of protesters storming the Congress, the presidential palace and the Supreme Court. And of course, the immediate Uh, reaction was to say, this is another Mm -hmm. January 6th. And just like January the 6th, um, the Capitol riot, you know, it took place several years ago in the US. People have said this this was an insurrection, a coup, uh, democracy is on the line. Tom, do you think that kind of characterization is fair? Uh, no, I mean, insofar as from from what I
1: understand of what actually took place, I mean, it was ugly, it mm. was anti-democratic, it should be condemned. Every, those involved where they've broken laws should be punished to the full extent of the law, which is exactly what any fair-minded person would have said after January the 6th yeah, as well. But to go that kind of extra step and to present this essentially as the fulfilment of the prophecy that everyone was saying about Bolsonaro and the same mm. thing they said about Trump, which is that this isn't just one quite authoritarian or anti-democratic or slightly crazed individual, but they're going to bring about some sort of genuine kind of authoritarian order that the uh system will not hold yeah um obviously in um brazil we got to the point where they were uh, you know all of his support or sections of his supporters were camping out outside of military bases you know yeah. actually demanding a coup so that's of course is, is disgraceful yeah and very concerning but at the same time i think you can lend these people far too much credence when what we saw in uh in Brazil, as well as what we saw at the capital, right, was this kind of dumb, idiotic, mm. ugly riot—a um, kind of giant temper tantrum, if yeah. you like, but if, if not a v- quite violent one in many respects. And on the one hand, I think you want to be—you want to be careful about as I say, kind of giving these people too much credence, you're also worried about kind of creating a kind of, pretend, the kind of pretext for a sort of authoritarian response. Now, yeah. I've not necessarily seen any whiffs of that, specifically in relation to Brazil, but that's certainly been the case in America. I mean, January 6th has been the pretext mm. for um, a lot of quite authoritarian rhetoric and policies on the part of the Biden administration to keep a lid on this new domestic terror threat. And then, of course, there's also just the brass neck of people who are condemning this denial of democracy, this really really ugly kind of expression of a lack of losers consent in relation to a democratic election when you look at 2016 Brexit mm. and Trump you had supposedly respectable people engaging in that kind of thing they might have done it at a press conference they might have done it um in they might have done it in legal cases they yeah. might have done it in ways where they still kept their kind of suit and tie on but that didn't change the fact that they were again demonstrating that kind of corrosion of losers consent but on the level of the elites not just a you know a few hundred idiots running around a vacant building as we saw there
0: yeah i mean Rakib, you know obviously the scenes are you know to be condemned but it is a bit rich to hear that the far right is kind of the only threat to democracy or to or to keep hearing that you know democracy is on the line because of um some quite, you know, quite nasty protests. So, I mean, what do you make of that?
2: Well, I think that much of the scenes that we saw recently in Brazil, uh, there they are parallels to be struck with the US Capitol riots. I think much of it is much of it is just up to the fact that Trump and Bolsonaro, they were just sore losers. that mm, yeah. um, they they lost both elections. And I, I think for all this talk about, you know, they talk a great deal about sovereignty, national independence. Um, but but I think in their own ways, both have undermined their respective democratic nation states uh, through some of their behavior and their rhetoric. But I do agree that there's also elements of the left, I think, they need to have a very serious period of introspection as well, uh, because they peddle a certain politics which very much sows uh, the seeds of division, which can undermine the democratic polity um, and social solidarity in their in their respective countries. Uh, so, so, I think the, the key thing here with Trump and Bolsonaro, I, I don't find them to be traditional conservatives as, mm. as such, <laughs> and I think at the heart of traditional conservatism is is very much that that sense of fair play and accepting that when you've lost an election fair and square you just leave it at that um, that that wasn't the case with with either individual uh, so I, I think that that was a bit of a shame and i think that has struck a blow more generally for national populism but there are elements on the on the left who also uh, uh, are not doing themselves any favours when it comes to the democratic health of their respective countries.
0: Yeah, because you you know you do get the likes of Bolsonaro, you know, warning ahead of the election that um, it's going to be it could be rigged. Don't believe the polls. Yeah. I'm actually winning, mm-hmm. and Trump saying similar stuff around you know 2020. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: um, he said it in the run up to 2016 as well. He, he? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't go my way, then Plunt, you'll know why. Plant, anyway, planting
0: you know. the seed of doubt, but yeah. we do hear and it's not called out enough. Exactly the same kind of rhetoric from. The Democrats or the Remainers in in the UK. I mean, Hillary Clinton still hasn't quite got over her loss in 2016, mm-hmm. and when they talk about, you know, in her particular case, it was because Russia stole mm-hmm. the election allegedly. Mm-hmm. But that conspiracy theory wasn't just sort of entertained on Twitter. It ended up, you know, in a serious investigation with mm-hmm. serious state resources behind it, with you know hundreds of people being interviewed. It didn't find anything because mm-hmm. it was bollocks from the start, but. You members know. of the Trump campaign being surveilled and so yeah. like all of this was very, very... Very serious. authoritarian mm. and very serious. Um, and yet that isn't called democracy denial or election denial
1: for some mm-hmm. reason. And I, I think you could make the case that in, in many respects, this sort of respectable democracy deniers or the elite democracy deniers can be much more dangerous because mm. of the fact that these are conspiracy theories, things like Russiagate and so on, which are believed by many people who actually have their hands on the levers of governance of the states um, yeah. who are involved in the highest echelons of society, um, who have, you know, big liberal cable news shows, not something which is just streamed on the internet mm. to a few thousand nutcases. Like this is not, this yeah. is a kind of entirely not different...
0: going around telegram channels in no, exactly, secret. Exactly, <laughs> which,
1: which arguably... And also the other things you see, particularly with Trump, for, for instance, as an example, um, his own sore loser, mm. conspiracy theorising, not conceding and so on so much of that was held up in this very kind of de- this very kind of extreme fashion as the sort of mirror image of what the democrats are doing it's like yeah. well they didn't concede 2016 you know yeah. well they were pushing all this Russiagate nonsense well th- and also using some of the examples in which there was this genuine overstep of the fbi getting involved in twitter mm. or you know again the security services um surveilling his own team and so on real things that would take place which were then kind of blown up into a whole another level of proportion and, and yeah. pr- portrayed as the deep state trying to steal an election and so on or used to justify some of those claims so they really feed off of each other as well but it's a similar thing that we saw in the UK you know the thing about the, the problem the th- about with the Remainers is the fact that they actually got quite close yeah. to actually overturning a democratic vote they did it by effectively bringing one of the political parties on the side they launched all these legal challenges they did so on and so forth but th- they got a lot closer to overturning a very significant democratic vote than a, f- than a f- thousand idiots running around a building in Washington yeah. DC or Brasilia could ever dream of
0: I mean, and that's people, worth yeah.
1: dwelling on for a minute I think.
0: I mean how do people think it works that if you capture a building then you're suddenly in charge? Yeah. I, mean, it doesn't I mean
1: that work. was the other thing, Like the, the idea that these are coups, insurrections yeah. or whatever, they have no idea what they're doing Yeah. I mean it's it's idiotic it's stupid and it is very ugly especially, you know, I remember some of the image from the Capitol right? people walking around with confederate flags in the nation's Capitol, it was an outrageous yeah. sort of statement and things like this but it was dumb and it mm. was ugly. It wasn't, they weren't about to kind of seize power. Also, the institutions of the um, of American democracy held up against it Yeah. Um. because of the actions of certain individuals. So these things, it's not to say you shouldn't be worried about them, but at the same time, I think we shouldn't let off the hook those who have been, when it comes to democracy denial, when it comes to kind of authoritarianism, have often been showing the crazy, uh, crazier end of the populace, how it's done yeah. really over the last few years. but.
0: Right, let's move on to trigger warnings. So it used to be the case, I think it's fair to say, that trigger warnings were given to at least explicit material, adult themes, thinking about sexual assault, suicide, um, racism, those kinds of issues. But now Aberdeen University has taken it to a new level and has slapped content warnings on Peter Pan, among other (laughs) children's classics. Rakeem, do you think uh, Peter Pan needs a trigger warning? You, you know, should an adult undergraduate be worried before they pick it up?
2: Well, I think some elements of the academic sector really truly lost the plot. Um <laughs> felt that for some time, but I, I think this is a new low. Actually, the fact that there needs to be a, a sort of a tr- tr- trigger warning for Peter Pan, um, I think, I think it's just absolutely bonkers, really. And I think, in a way, it, it also it demonstrates how there's a tendency among um more and more academics just to infantilize people more generally that yeah. they actually need to be warned about the contents of peter pan um incredibly patronizing uh, i i I've, i can't say anything more than the fact that i think it really demonstrates that not all is well quite clearly in our <laughs> university system and um the
0: the kind of justification for the warning mm. um that it could be is that it could be emotionally challenging to mm. learn about the the gender roles, the strange gender roles in, in, in this children's classic. Um, I mean, this is obviously not an isolated incident. Yeah. Um, usually people will justify this on the grounds that people need this kind of pre-warning. It's for their mental health. Yeah. I mean, that's just nonsense, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. And I think it was always nonsense because when you first started to see this kind of crop up, you know, it's probably knocking on for 10 years ago now, but maybe a bit less, in America, which is where all the terrible things come from, um, (laughs) at the moment at least, uh, or American academia certainly, uh, which is... um, the justification was, again, these things are always quite limited, aren't they? Like, yeah. you know, if, you, if you've if you got a survivor of sexual assault in your class or mm. someone who has experienced um, horrendous racial abuse and so on and so forth, therefore, if they're reading a novel or a play or even actually a kind of legal text, which might deal in some of these themes and cases and details that you want to warn them so they, they're not quite literally triggered in the in the yeah. course of your class – that was always nonsense. I mean, there was yeah. a quite influential piece, I think, on the Chronicle of Higher Education many years ago in the US, which just rubbished that whole therapeutic justification for it. They were like, uh, if you were a therapist, you'd know that this was, if anything, the, the opposite of what you should yeah. do with someone in your in your, in your your class, if you like, um, that kind of priming people to mm. be upset by somebody makes them more likely to be upset. All these sorts of arguments were very well ventilated with the whole for trigger warnings discussion. And yet it continued on more yeah. and more different texts. It started just to be about certain themes that people might get upset about. In some places, you saw them drop trigger warning for content warning because yeah. trigger was too upsetting. I mean, it yeah. all became self-parodic very quickly because it was always clear this was about, as, as Racket was saying, treating students like children, which has been the story of the past 20 years or more in general in relation to their social lives in relation to what they're reading in relation to what speakers are allowed to come and address them on campus um what's depressing about it is that it's often fueled obviously these things coming from administrations but often fueled by the demands of the loudest voices amongst the student body who actually want yeah. this kind of infantilization and it's particularly depressing because in both the UK and the US around sort of 1970s a little bit before there was the the battle was to get rid of what they called in loco parentis. Mm. Um, the idea that the universities are offent- uh, effectively like um, school teachers. They're effectively like surrogate parents. You know, you've got to be in in your dorm by a certain time, keeping the boys and girls apart, all these different things that were kind of saying, you're not really adults because those restrictions were not only damaging to their own social lives, sex lives, whatever, but also politically, it yeah. was a thing that was the justification for um, regulating what could be taught and who could speak and so on very tightly. And you had a generation of students who completely rebelled against that. Now you've got a generation of students, um, certainly at least the activist set, the loudest voices in the room, who are demanding that the university authorities play parent. And that's just really quite depressing. Mm. There's no other way to put it. It produces all of these ridiculous results. But how could you not if if your working assumption is that that students are basically children? You're going to end up warning them not just about some gritty legal text, but even about beloved children's novels <laughs> i suppose it's the logical <laughs> endpoint in a weird sort of way
0: well uh, surely everything could potentially be triggering if you th- if you mm. really think about it in those terms i think my favorite um or, or the worst example i guess um the most ironic example was the trigger warning given by i think it was northampton university to 1984 mm. um you know in case you might discover some thought crimes <laughs> <laughs> Ricky, do you want to add anything final?
2: Well, I, I just think that more more generally, I, th- I think academics should be in the business of trusting their students more in, in terms of being mature enough to handle, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the classic literature. I think that, that that's what it boils down to. I mean, Peter Pan is a children's classic, which which makes it all the bit more embarrassing uh really so i i think that process of infantilization has, has, has seriously accelerated in recent times and i think that it's a real shame that academics uh just don't, just don't trust their students more to handle mm. it. i mean i don't consider this to be particularly challenging material, you know, <laughs> <laughs> material there's material out there far more challenging that can really mm. um, test one's, you know, the, the, their views, their values, their thoughts, and all the rest of it. But I think that's part of the process when it comes to one's intellectual growth.
1: Mm. And hopefully more students are rebelling against this stuff yeah. as well. Like You see this stuff, it's so, like so, a yeah. giant parental advisory sticker. Yeah, It should irritate the hell out of you. <laughs> it'd be good to see more students pushing back. Definitely. Again, so.
0: Reject the safe Absolutely. space. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.